We often hear from business leaders about how to make business decisions or how to build a business, but we rarely hear about the science behind how we gain our mind for business. At a recent Ivy Ideas Night, world-renowned neuroscientist and professor of neuroscience and business at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, Moran Cerf, discussed the brain science behind the business mind, how we can best use our brain in business, and how neuroscience is helping to change the world of business. Enjoy. So, uh, I'm indeed a professor of uh, neuroscience and business, and I thought I'm going to use the half an hour to tell you a little bit about what I do and what is the kind of field of neuroscience doing in the world of business. And then I'll kind of leave it for us all to discuss various things that you might care about that I'm kind of open for questions. So I spent the last 12 years of my life studying neuroscience and the last three years in a business school working on how to translate the work in neuroscience to business. And that's part of a trend that's growing in the last couple of years. There's about six professors like me now that are trained as neuroscientists and moved to business schools to translate our understanding of the brain to something that companies can benefit from or something that will help generally people in business schools understand how marketing works, how finance works, how people think about things differently, and essentially how uh, our mind makes decisions and what we can do with it. So before I tell you a little bit about my work, I need to do one thing, which is take a volunteer from the back. You, you're responsible for uh, raising your hand when I speak too fast. It's going to happen all the time, but so, so don't hesitate. Like Channel everyone else's, look, look at people and see if they're starting to move uncomfortably. That's the sign. I mean, you all get to do that, but you're responsible for that. Good. Okay, two minutes history. World of economics was pretty much, in many people's minds, established about 140 years ago at the days of Adam Smith, when he kind of created a set of rules that he thought would govern economics the way we know it. All the rules that you studied, if you ever studied a class in economics, macroeconomics, or any class in business, are pretty much determined by those. They say that the, there's graphs of supply and demands, there's uh, rules like buy low, sell high. Everything that you kind of learned, in, if you ever learned about economics, was established back in those days. And for nearly two centuries, these were the rules that governed economics. And everyone worked with them, and they were working pretty well. Outside of some anomalies, some situations where the rules didn't work well, where the equations didn't predict the behavior of people perfectly. And for a while, people treated those as just like an outlier. So there were many, many outliers that didn't work with the equations, but they weren't substantial enough to kind of build in rules just for them. The last 25 years, people have tried to look at those outliers and focus on them. And in those outliers, we developed a new field of research called behavioral economics that actually brought into economics psychologists to explain those anomalies and give rise to understanding of how people think that actually explains more of the behavior that today than the equations of Adam Smith work. So I'm going to give you maybe one or two examples of this field. And just to make it clear, this field took us for 25 years journey that really, really changed how people think of economics. And in many ways, it's the governing tool that many businesses try to work with people are using right now. But about five years ago, it reached its limit. And the limit was that a lot of times we realize that people actually behave in a very irrational way. They have biases that don't align with the equations and make them do things that are kind of not working the way they think they should work. Problem there was that it was just descriptive. As in, we could say this is the problem, but we couldn't fix that. 
People didn't know how to do differently in, when they come to these moments, and mostly we didn't know why this happens. So people like myself joined about five years ago in trying to offer the next level of what we call behavioral economic, which is trying to explain why people do things that make no sense, so to speak, and how we can fix it and change behaviors. The two things that my colleagues and I are doing is explaining the irrational behaviors of people and then changing them to make people behave rationally. That's the kind of history. So let's talk for a second about behavioral economic and explain what it's about. The rules of economics, if you go back to 40 years ago, said that people are rational. If you give them options that are clearly distinguished, where one of them is better than the other, people are going to choose the better one. Example would be, you go to the supermarket, there are uh, two bottles of water that are identical. One costs $2, one costs $5. You want to buy one, you're going to buy the cheapest one. If they're the same, just the price is different, you're going to buy the cheapest one. This is the rule that basically economics rely on because it should which work, work this way. This is a rational thinking would work, but somehow we have a lot of cases where people don't work like that. And I'll give you one or two examples of these situations to kind of tease you and make you understand what I'm talking about, and then I'll tell you how neuroscience comes into this world. So let's start with the example that was in the paper that won the Nobel Prize in 2002 that demonstrated to people that somehow, beyond just pure economics, people also involved emotions when they come to make decisions, and those emotions can actually shift the equations to different uh, realms. So in the story, in the academic paper that came now 16 years ago, the scientists who created the experiment basically created a thought experiment. So they tell you a scenario, and they ask you to think how you would respond to this scenario, and I'm gonna share this scenario with you, and we'll do it together. So let's take a person, you, what's your name? Okay, so Loa, uh, you're interested in going to a movie. Let's say you wanna watch your favorite film, Robocop, and you uh, decide that you're gonna watch it, you sit at home, you go to Fandango, you buy a ticket, you print the ticket, you put it in your pocket, and you walk to the movie theater to watch the movie. It takes you about 20 minutes to get to the theater, when you get to the theater, you go to the, to the entrance, you're about to give them your ticket, you reach into your pockets, and you realize that somewhere between your home and the theater, the ticket fell off your pocket and you lost it. You have no ticket. You have no way to prove that you had one, so the only way for you to get a ticket is to now go back to the line, stand in line, and buy a new ticket for 10 more dollars. And the question they asked people was, will you actually do that? Will you actually go to the other line, stand in line, and spend 10 more minutes and 10 more dollars to buy a new ticket? And you can think for yourself whether you do it or not. Presumably, some of you would say, I don't care, I'm gonna still do it. Some of you say, you know what, I feel like I, I already invested in this ticket and I feel upset, I'm gonna just walk home. While you keep that in mind, let's take a different scenario. In the other scenario, you didn't buy a ticket yet. You're at home and you say, I wanna watch Robocop. You just walk from home to the theater. When you get to the theater, you're about to buy a ticket. And you realize when you get to the checkout, to the, to the counter, that you lost a $10 bill. So at some point between home and the theater, you lost $10 bill, it fell off your pocket. And the question they ask now is, how likely are you to actually not buy a ticket right now? And the answer here was overwhelmingly, people said, I don't see the con connection. I don't see the connection between losing $10 and not buying a ticket. And somehow, in the first scenario, many people said, you know what, I'm going to go home because I feel upset. In the other one, they didn't say anything. They said, I'm going to buy a ticket. And for economists, there is no difference between a paper that has Robocop on it or a paper that has a president. But for us, it's a big difference because in one of them, we actually feel like we invested our emotions into it and we kind of already made some effort. And the other one, we feel like it's independent. So that is why, even though the equations say that $10 is $10, no matter what format it is, for us, they're actually are different because one of them feels like it already carried some aspect of the theater. And this was just one example to show how the equations break and we all think it makes sense, but somehow we can't predict it if you just use pure economics. Here's another example. 
let's take you now. What's your name? Lauren? Okay. Uh, so, Lauren, you, you live in a high-rise somewhere nearby. Let's say under your building, there's a supermarket, expensive one, Whole Foods, that sells uh, really pricey watermelons. So, if you want to buy, buy watermelon in the Whole Foods under your building, it costs $10. And you say, this is really pricey, it feels like a little bit of too much. Fortunately for you, if you cross the street and you walk two blocks away, there's another supermarket, and in that supermarket, they sell the same watermelon for $5. So you can just cross the street and walk two blocks, two minutes walk, and you can get the same item for $5 rather than $10. And again, they ask the question, will you do that? Will you actually buy it in the, in the supermarket right down under your building, or will you walk two blocks to buy it in the other supermarkets? And you can think again what you would do. And here's the other scenario to counter that one. So imagine, Loan, that under your building, there's also a store that sells Ferraris. And Ferraris under your building cost $1 million. But fortunately for you, Two blocks away, there's a store that sells the same Ferrari for $999,000, sorry, $999,995. So you can get $5 discount on a Ferrari if you cross the street and walk two blocks. And ask the question, will you actually cross the street and go buy the Ferrari for $5 less? And again, we all kind of find it amusing because it seems like $5 out of a million is too little, it's a dollar in the bucket. Why would we actually care to walk two blocks to buy a Ferrari for $5 less? But again, for economists, $5 are $5. It doesn't matter if they're $5 out of a watermelon or if they're $5 out of a Ferrari. Somehow, for us, there's a big difference because we look at numbers not just as pure absolute numbers, but also as aspected part of a whole. Okay, so I spoke about example in the world of emotions. Let me give you examples in the world of fairness, another type of emotion. Another complex emotion that doesn't fit in the equations of Adam Smith but actually makes all sense for us is the idea of fairness. So when we come to buy and sell things, we don't just look at the amounts properly, we also look at the entire experience of the purchase. So here's another experience. Let's, let's go to you. What's your name? Christine. Okay. Uh, so let's say, Christine, that you, you live in Chicago. And at some point you say, you know, I really want to visit, uh, you, you, you hear about our work and you say, I want to visit your lab. And our lab has a kind of facility at the MIT Media Lab in Cambridge. And you say, I'm going to visit it. So you, you fly to Boston and you take a car and you drive from the airport in Logan to Cambridge. And you're looking to come to the building where our lab is. And it's really hard to find parking in Cambridge. So you're circling the area looking like you're going to miss the meeting, but fortunately for you, you're lucky, at some point you see an empty space right outside the building. You're very happy, you park your car quickly, and you're ready to go when you realize that there's a meter there, and unfortunately, the meter only takes quarters. You have a credit card, you have many, many bills, but you don't have quarters, and now the question, what will you do? You already found parking, you're already pretty uh, late for the meeting to visit the lab, uh, you will never find a parking if you keep circling, there's a bank, but it's about 10 minutes walk, and you ask yourself, what should I do? As you ask yourself this question, you're fortunate enough to see me passing by the lab. You see me and say, Moran, I'm so happy to see you. You know, I'm in trouble. I need to go to visit the lab, as you know. But the thing is, this place only takes quarter. I only have dollar bills. Uh, will, you, will you give me a quarter? Do you have a quarter? And I say, of course I have a quarter. I'm going to sell it to you for a dollar. We kind of laugh because it feels unfair. Right? It's like, it's like a, will you take this deal, by the way? You take it? Hey. Okay, so, so now, that I, now that you say that, I actually think that, that this quarter is really precious to me. I'm actually selling it for $5. Still taking it? <laughs> I, guess, I guess at some point we're going to realize that there's a price that you say this is unfair. And, and the point is that it's like, it feels like even though you need it, 
you can calculate the equations and realize that uh, if you had to leave the car, you're probably going to get a ticket. It costs more. If you go to the bank, it's going to be uh, too much and you might get a ticket as well. Even though this kind of, uh, you can put out the equation, somehow it feels to many of us unfair. Let's make it a little bit interesting. Same scenario starting. You live in Chicago, you fly to Logan, you take a car, you drive to Cambridge, you find a parking, you realize that you have no quarter, and you see me. And you ask me, Moran, do you have quarters? And I say, you know, I don't have quarters, but I really like you, and here's what I'm willing to do for you. I'm willing to run to the bank right now, get quarters for you, and come back. I'll do it really, really fast. If I do this, will you give me a dollar for this service? Now it feels pretty fair to us. Now it's the same deal as before, right? We exchange a quarter for a dollar, but somehow, my adding a little bit of work to the equation feels fair to us. Now, if you think about it rationally, the second deal is much worse than the first one. In the first one, you exchange a quarter for a dollar. In the second one, you did the same exchange, only you had to wait in more minutes and you got sweaty quarters. But somehow, it feels fair to us because we see the work happening. And in that sense, another parameter that wasn't in the equations before is the idea that work and how visible it is, is also something that we want to see when we look at services. And in many ways, there are now more and more companies that are starting to implement those ideas. The ideas that it's not just about the transaction, it's also about the experience as a whole, and create all kinds of experiences that people are willing to pay for or even do weird things for just because it feels more fair. You can think of websites, for instance, or let's, let, you can think of a lot of companies, for instance, that aren't just giving you the item that you buy, but also giving you a lot of information about it to make the service more, more useful. So if you go to a high-end restaurant in Chicago, you ask for a fish, they don't just give you a fish, they give you a story. They tell you, this fish was harvested in Alaska. It was FedExed overnight from here. It was braised, like they tell you in the story, and this story makes, the, it's the same fish, but with the story, you actually see all the work that the chef has put into the fish. One of the websites that we investigated a little bit is a website called Kayak. Do you know this website? It's a, it's a travel kind of agency. Kayak is right now the most popular website for ticket purchases in hotels and cars. And one of the things that people say about Kayak that makes them really like it is that they feel that Kayak works really hard for them. Now, what happens in Kayak? When you go to Kayak and you search for, you know, you say a flight from Los Angeles to Chicago tomorrow, and you press search, Kayak pops up a window or kind of a little tag, and it starts telling you what it does. It says, searching United, loading American, looking at Delta, sorting results, and then it gives you that. And people actually reflect on the experience, and they say, I really feel that Kayak is working hard for me. Now, I can assure you that Expedia and Priceline, they're all doing the same thing. But somehow, the experience of, like, the, the knowledge that something is happening makes people actually enjoy it more to the point that we played with something to just see how much we can take it, and we actually created a fake Kayak website where we increased the time people have to wait. So we told you, instead of waiting 10 seconds, we tell you, we're going to have you wait 20 seconds, 30 seconds. And we try to see at what point people are going to say, you know what, I'm not really sure about how much I like it. How much do you think people are willing to wait and see Kayak working before they get upset? 10 seconds? 30? How much? 90? About 65 seconds people are willing to wait as long as they see something working before they say, you know what, it's too much. Now, now I'm feeling upset. But 65 seconds, you need to sit there and just look at things working. Now, it, now we did, should say, it only works if, uh, if, you already, if you don't have expectations for that. We tried with Google, for instance, people don't like it. If you, try to, if you, if you search on Google and it takes 65 seconds, uh, people don't like it. They feel like Google is, is, it's established that Google takes about a fraction of a second. So if Google starts taking, saying, you know, load, loading results and so on, it, people are not upset. But when we rebranded Google search by saying uh, searching the deep web, people are willing to have it at the same time. 
So uh, unclear what deep web is, but if you just add more things, people feel that Google is working, suddenly even Google is something people will. So, so, so another learning that we had from the change from pure economics to behavioral economics was that you can add to the equations all kinds of parameters like fairness and or emotions, like commitment, and realize that people are willing to pay for them even though they have no value per se for those things. They're just part of our mental equations of how we think about things. By the way, there, there's a... How many people are single here? How many people are married here? That's the opposite question. Okay, so, so here's, here's tip from behavioral economics to uh, married people how to succeed in your marriage. Uh, this, I, just re I just learned it recently from a colleague of mine, and I'm uh, happy to share it and, and uh, see if it works. So uh, when we started looking at, at this idea of fairness and the idea of work, we realized that it doesn't just end with uh, uh, money. It also ends with any transaction is between two people. So one of my colleagues has this study where he brings married couples to the lab and he separates them. He sends the woman to one room, the men to the other room, and he asks them a simple question. The question is, if you take the household chores as a pie, what percent of the pie do you do? What percent is your spouse doing? And then you take those two numbers, you add them up, and you see kind of how it adds up. In the history of time, those numbers never added up to less than 100%. And when you try to think about what's going on there, one of the explanations could be the idea of how we see work and how we see the work of others. So when you think about things that you do, we actually have a really clear mental experience of all of them. We, we see all the parts. When you look at other people, we only see the bottom line. So here's an example. If take a couple, and let's say the husband is throwing the trash. If I'm the husband, throwing the trash, is a 20-step process, right? It means like going to the trash bin, separating the recyclables from not, putting it in, a, in another bag, going outside, getting dressed, getting an elevator, going down, putting one, like it's a 20-step process I have to do. All of us see all the steps of everything we do and very few of the steps that the other person is doing. So as an advice for relationship, if you're in a relationship right now, try to communicate to others a lot of things that you did today and you'll see how they appreciate it a lot more. Like, try to like, come back home and say, you know, honey, today I was in the office, I had to open an email, and then read the text, and then type an answer, and then press send, and then another one, and then I had to uh, look at the news and scroll. Like, if you start doing that, suddenly your life seems like there's a lot more aspects to it as well. Okay, so advice from a friend. Uh, um, so, I hope that I'm getting you to understand this, this idea that behavioral economics brought in the last 25 years, that it's not just about uh, the pure supply and demand and, and the properties of, of people's quantities that make for transactions, but also people's emotions and thinking and ideas of, of psychology that kind of leak into the equations and really explain how we behave. Okay, this got us so far, but there was still one problem that economists and psychologists together couldn't solve that drove neuroscientists to enter this field and try to uh, offer a new layer of understanding. And this was the uh, notion of happiness. So one of the uh, key things that a lot of psychologists have been interested in in the last 25 years that actually drove them to look at economics was this very basic question of the connection between happiness and money.
So there is a belief among a lot of people that there is a connection between, between money and happiness, even though you probably all know a lot of like newspapers with a headline that says money doesn't buy happiness. And even though we have a lot of evidence that this is not the case, people still think that there's some connection between those two. Um, what drove psychologists to go to, to look at it is this belief that people has, have that has no uh, merit in reality. So in many countries, like uh, Japan and England, they actually survey people annually about their income, about their experiences, and also about their happiness. And they have a lot of people in those census that they run that did increase their amount of money significantly in those years or lost a lot of money in those years, and there's almost no change in happiness. So there's a lot of evidence that there is no correlation between money and happiness. Yet, if I gave you now a piece of paper and I ask you to make a wish, if I give you enough wishes, at some point, a wish for more money is going to come up. And a lot of those wishes have to do with happiness. You think I'm going to be more happy if I have more money. Now, I can guarantee to you that the equations are not lying. The, the equations basically suggest that uh, there is some connection between money and happiness, but it's only to a very small extent. As in, if you have no money and I give you some money, then there is an increase in happiness, but it goes up to about $50,000. So if you have $50,000 above what you need, from then on, every dollar that you make still flat in happiness. So to be a billionaire or a multi-billionaire doesn't increase your happiness at all. The only thing that actually matters in that context of money is uh, how much your neighbors have. So, so it's a relative thing. And in fact, there's a... There's, there's a one interesting fact that came in a result a few months ago that shows that when a person wins the lottery, their neighbors start spending more. <laughs> that, that was kind of a surprise to a lot of researchers. So, so, it, so there is some relative aspect to, to how money translates to people's kind of connection. But altogether, very little connection between money and happiness. But at the same time, people often say, if you ask them that they want more money in, in questions about like, what they wish for. So before I tell you what we learned about this connection and why neuroscientists actually entered and solved this, I want to play with you the game of trying to guess of all the things that people looked at that do correlate with happiness, what do you think are the top five things? What are the top five things that do correlate significantly with happiness? We know that money doesn't. So I had health. Health, not in the top five. Relationship. That's one of the top five, it's number two. Social interaction. Work satisfaction, not in the top ten even. Satisfaction generally is not in the top ten. Uh, purpose, not in the top ten. Giving back is number five. Yeah? Relationships generally. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll make the nuance difference in a second, but yes, so we had, so we had okay, so, so we had uh, number five we already have, giving back. Number two we have, social interactions. What else? Not purpose, not health. Yeah, not experiences. I mean, experiences are a little bit vague, so because the, everything could be experienced. But so, if you if you take experiences to be like like interactions could be an experience, then yes, but not per se just every experiences. Yeah, religion number three. Also vague. Yeah, accomplishment no. Buying thing no. Yeah. No, I mean it's it's connected to intelligence generally, but no. Travel, vacation, no, leisure, not. Okay, so I'll give you, I'll give you, so we'll go, we'll go back from number five to number one, and I'll tell you how, it, how, it, how they came up with it, and then we'll talk about neuroscience as the answer to everything. So, number five on the list. 
is volunteering. So giving back to others turns out increases people's happiness by about 0.2. So the scale, is, the scale goes from a 1 to 10. People are asked basically questions about their life, events that happen to them, and how happy they are in those events. And the increase in happiness based on the effect is that, they, that volunteering and doing things for others increases happiness by 0.2%. By, sorry, by 0.2 in this scale. So, so think about it for a second. It means that if I'm sitting at home right now and I'm tired and I'm feeling so-so, leaving home and going to do something for others, it feels like tiring and even more of a work for us, but actually when you come back, you will uh, say that you're feeling a little bit happy. And now this actually ties to what I said before in the following way. I said earlier that there's this kind of common uh, phrase, money doesn't buy happiness, which you all heard of. Turns out, if you combine the fact that people like to volunteer with the first fact, there is one study from a colleague of mine, Professor Mike Norton from Harvard, that actually changed this phrase and he says, if money doesn't buy happiness, you're spending it the wrong way. And what he suggests that actually there is one way by which money actually buys you happiness, if you spend on others. So if you take your money and you spend it on other people, you will increase your happiness level. And in fact, one of the studies that they did there took a company, took a team of 10 people, and they gave each person of the team $20. So in the morning, someone comes to you and says, here's $20, go buy something for yourself. People go, they buy something for themselves, they come back, they ask them, how happy are you now compared to how you were before? No changing happiness. People enjoy for a second getting the $20, but when they go and buy something, they don't really feel much increase of happiness afterwards. A different experiment, they come to the same 20 people and they say, here's $20, go buy something for other people, come back. Everyone comes back and says they're a little bit happy, and overall the entire team is happier, a lot more cooperative the entire rest of the day. And if you think about it financially, you spend the same amount of money. It's the same $20, just spread differently. Everyone got something for $20, but they feel happy. So number five actually ties money to happiness, but only if you spend on others. So volunteering and doing things for others is the uh, first component. Number four. Number four is tied to some things that people said here, but actually it's simple, exercise. So it turns out physical activity releases the uh, hormones in our brain that make us actually feel happiness. And it's, it's momentary happiness. It doesn't last too long, but it gives us the spike in happiness that if we repeat it over time, does actually change the chemistry in the brain. That's number. Number three, being spiritual. So it's not really about being religious. It's believing that there's something bigger than you, but not just that there's purpose to life, but actually that there's actually an entity that's bigger than you that you can communicate with. And this ties to number two. So one of the things that increases happiness significantly, up to now it's very small increases, one of the things that actually increases happiness significantly is uh, social interactions. So any interaction with other people increases our happiness significantly by one point. So importantly, it doesn't have to be pleasant. It doesn't have to be something that you like to talk about. It doesn't have to be something that actually responds to you. You can actually sit in a room and just talk to a person and they are silent, and just by them being there, you have to imagine how your words sound from someone else's mind and reflect from their perspective. And just by doing that, you already have your mind go to the process of actually generating new views of things that makes you happy. Our brains like interactions. And if we just give our brain this, this experience of interaction, it immediately increases our happiness. In fact, the worst thing for our brain is solitude. The thing that brains like least is zero input. One of the classical experiments about that that really showed the extreme version of that was done as a field experiment without planning on prisoners in, solitude, in solitary confinement. In Alcatraz in San Francisco, at the time, uh, 
sometimes uh, people were sentenced to solitary confinement. So they would take a prisoner and put them for 10 days in a room by themselves, no light, no interaction with other people. Essentially, you just get food once a day from someone, but that's, that's about it. And those people reported uh, that after a few hours in this place, when the brain essentially gets no input from the outside world, their mind, they went insane, and what their mind did was created an entire world out inside. So they started seeing people, talking to them, feeling that they're outside, hallucinating. Our brain immediately creates an entire world around us when it gets nothing from the outside world. Think about it. You're in a prison with rapists, murderers, the worst people on earth, and still being alone away from them is worse than being with them. That's how much the brain likes to have interaction. And that's why many people suggest number three, spiritualism is so important because people who believe that there is something higher outside that they can talk to, in a way they're never alone. Even when they go to bed by themselves, there's someone with them that they can interact with. So believing that there's something bigger and higher than you allows you to actually have someone with you all the time that you can talk to. And that's why number two and three are somewhat combined. Number one, far above all the others with a big difference. So between one and two, is much different than between two, three, four, and so on. And that is sleep. So out of all the things that you can wish for in the list that I'm going to give you in a paper, if you could wish for something, it's not the million dollars, it's not the uh, love or children or whatever. Children actually are uh, negative to call it, by the way, for happiness. <laughs> like the, the highest increase in happiness is actually age 60 when, when, for parents whose kids leave home. Uh, that's, the, that's the only time the children actually contribute to happiness. Uh, um, but, but sleep is actually the one thing that is the, with the highest correlation to happiness. Now, it's unclear if it's correlation or causation, meaning it's not clear that if people that uh, are happy sleep better, people that sleep better are happy. All we know is that there's some connection between being awake and feeling awake to being happy the rest of the day. And importantly, it's not about the amount of hours. So all the new parents don't have to be miserable. It's not that if you sleep only four hours, you're guaranteed to be miserable. It's whether you feel awake when you wake up. So as you get older, you need only a few hours to feel the same. When you're a baby, you need a lot more hours to feel that. But the point is that if you wake up and you feel that you're not tired, the rest of the day is going to feel better. Going to get a root canal will feel better if you slept well before. That's the thing that they tried in the example. So. This was the high school edition, and this, just this anecdote, was enough to open a door for neuroscientists to come and say, kind of, we know the results, but it makes no sense, let's explain them. And the reason neuroscientists could open the door to things and change them is because we understand a lot about what the brain does when you're not there. Meaning, what our brain does when we're sleeping. In the last three years of neuroscience in business, has focused primarily on looking at key moments in your life where things work in ways that you don't control and using them to change your behavior or to make you understand your biases. So I'm getting to the point where I'm going to uh, use the neuroscience as a kind of icing on the cake to tell you what we do. So convinced you that there's a problem, convinced you hopefully that behavioral economic is uh, expanding some of the biases. Now. Uh, realizing that there's uh, moments where we don't control things, neuroscience comes to the rescue. Okay, so here's what we learned. Two learnings from the last eight years that shaped entirely differently the way we think about choices come from looking at sleep, looking at memory. And the two of them are connected. So, 
memories. In 2010, neuroscientists entirely changed their understanding of memories. For centuries, we thought that memories work in the following way. You go to an experience, you take it into your brain, you store it in a file, you lock the file somewhere, and from then on, it's there. You might forget the file, you might forget something, but throughout your life, if you remember it, then when someone asks you about it, you just open the drawer, you load this memory, and you share it. So if I ask you tomorrow about this evening, right now you're creating experiences in your mind, you save them, you have all kinds of memories you create. If tomorrow someone asks you what happened last night, you will just load this memory and tell them, I was in this evening, I had a cheese, I had a cracker, and I spoke to this person, and so on. This will be your memory. And the belief that, that prevailed for the last century was that this memory is the same memory that if someone asked you in a week, in two weeks, in a month. You just tell the same story. What we learned in 2010 was that it's not the case. What we learned is that as you load memories and use them, you change them. So every time you open a memory and you use it, you actually open it for some change that leak into it and make it different. So for example, if someone tomorrow asks you about tonight, what did you do last night? They make you open the drawer and load the memory and tell them, last night I had this cheese and cracker and I spoke to this person. As you tell this story, your memory is floating in the vulnerable, kind of like the icons of the iPhone, like sitting there. And any information that will exist at that moment will leak into the memory and will get saved with it. And from then on, it's changed. And if a week from now, someone asks you about the same evening and says, what did you do a week ago? You won't load the original, you will load the modified version and you tell a different story still carries a lot of information from the original one, but you will also have whatever leaks into the memory tomorrow. And you will put new information into it and save it again. So essentially, every time you use a memory, you open it for changes and introduce a room for a little modifications. Now this is not a bug, this is actually a feature of memory. It is what allows us to change. It's what allows us to not uh, carry trauma all the time. We have bad experiences formed as a memory, but then every time we remember them, we allow some changes that will ultimately make them better. So your boyfriend left you, you're feeling sad, and you just have bad experiences. You go to the therapist, you go to the therapist, the therapist asks you to tell the story, you load the memory and you tell the story, and the therapist intervenes. And she says something like, you know, for the last year when you spoke about your boyfriend, you also had a moment when you told me that you don't like this and that about him. And in doing so, she actually puts a new view of the same memory and you save it this way. And then you come back a week after and you load the same memory. She says, tell me again about the boyfriend breakup. And you load the modified version and she comes with a new information. And after six meetings, you actually have a different view of the same experience. This is the design. This is how memories get better. In a way, there's a, there's a joke among neuroscientists, it's kind of a cynical joke, that it says that the best memories in the world are saved in the brains of people with Alzheimer because they never use them. They just carry them the same way. But the reality is this is the case. The more we use memories, it's like a broken phone game. The more we open them for changes. And once we understood that, it meant that we can actually start inducing ideas into your brain that will help you change your decisions. So if you are the sum of your memories, then we can actually introduce changes over your course of your life, that will make you think about your journey differently. This is what marketing does. You see the same exposure every time, introduce an idea, and hopefully by the time you see it number 10, you will have a different view of that. This is why relationships work. This is also what happens when we want to change your behavior entirely. So three years ago, my colleagues and I took it to the extreme and combined the understanding that sleep somehow is the place where happiness is generated if you want, and memories also are key to that. 
change and combine them the following way. What we learned is that when you go to sleep for, say, a seven-hour sleep, you don't just sit there and rest. Your brain actually works more. In fact, you lose more weight when you sleep than when you're awake when it comes to brain. Your brain is hyperactive. And sleeping isn't just a seven-hour process that's the same. It's broken into stages and phases and different things happen in them. And we gradually are beginning to understand what happens in each of those stages. So in one of those stages, your brain actually kind of, you know, if you want to balances the hormones. In one stage, your body does things that will actually allow it to regenerate muscles or clean tissue. In one stage, you actually have dreams, which is one of the other things we look at. And in one stage, slow wave sleep, stage three, your brain actually looks at all the memories from the day and decides which ones are important and which ones should be deleted. So when you spend the day today, you walked, you had a lot of things that happened to you. For each of those things, you get the memory. Not all of those are important. Some of them are essential for you. Some of them are really, really important. You have to remember that you were in this place, not in that place. But you don't have to remember every step or every word I said. So your brain first puts everything in. But overnight, it kind of looks back at all the things that happened in a day. And it says, OK, these 10, I can compress into one memory. This I can delete. This one actually strengthened because it's really important to remember this person. I'm going to create more cells in the brain for this person. So overnight, in this particular window that takes about 20 minutes every 90 minutes, your brain looks at the past and decides what's important. And what we learned is that in this moment, if you penetrate the brain and you do things, you can control people's memories and help change them. So the result from the, the last three years that really shapes business by bringing neuroscience and aiding the changes of biases is understanding that we can actually fix your biases by going to your brain in this window and introducing changes. Here's how it works. The first study that opened up this Pandora box of behavior change overnight came from Cambridge three years ago. And what they show was that you can actually make people not want to smoke after a two-hour nap without them knowing why. So you take smokers. And those are people who were smokers for a while and wanted to quit, but couldn't resist the addiction. You bring them to the lab and you tell them, go to sleep. Take a nap. Take a nap for two hours. They have no idea what they're doing in this lab. They just came for a nap. They take a nap, they wake up, and they leave. And in the next 10 days after they leave, they don't want to smoke. What happened during the two-hour nap was that the scientists actually studied their brain and waited for their brain to reach this stage, this unique moment, slow wave sleep, where their brain kind of looks at the past and decides what's important, and then they sprayed the smell of nicotine into their nose. So spraying the smell of nicotine into your nose in the right concentration would make your brain essentially look at all the memories it has from the day and focus on smoking. So let's, let's think again about the concept of smoking and see how important it is for me. So you kind of, just by spraying the smell, you make the brain kind of point to the memory of smoking and assess it right now. What they do then is they immediately after spray the smell of rotten eggs. The smell of rotten eggs is a known smell to neuroscientists that uh, is penetrating the brain, creates an aversive experience, and doesn't wake you up with the small dosage. Most bad smells will just wake you up. This is a known smell that would actually penetrate your brain, make you feel bad, but not wake you up. What they do is they actually pair in this window of time, slow wave sleep, the smell of nicotine, rotten eggs. Nicotine, rotten eggs. Essentially, they condition your brain to think of the memory of smoking as a bad memory and suppress it. And what happens is that people wake up after this two-hour nap, and suddenly they have less of a desire to smoke. 
Now, unfortunately, it doesn't last too long. It's about one week long before it goes back, so we don't know yet what we need to do again to kind of increase that. We don't, there's a lot of things that are unknown, but what we do know is that we found this moment where your brain looks at the past, assesses the past, and we can actually craft new memories. In the last three years, there are studies that we did where we tried to take people and in the night, when they get to this moment, make them want to wake up and choose salad over a steak. Make them choose a healthy option in, in food versus not in various other tastes. Uh, make them make decisions better, rehearse memories overnight, and essentially we're, we're starting to see the power of changing your behavior overnight. The sky is the limit here. We didn't find what doesn't work. We didn't find exactly how it works, but we know when it works. You can think of a Procter & Gamble having to go to sleep and wake up wanting to buy Colgate. You can think of companies waking you, so I can see all, you, 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 you see the creepy aspect of it. You see what it means. So right now, the thing that makes it not uh, too powerful is the fact that uh, it only works if you do it in this window, specific window of night. If you just spray the smell of nicotine in the night, in the room, it won't work. The brain has to be triggered in the right moment. So as long as Alexa doesn't ask you to, you know, turn it on when it's going to sleep and uh, put something on your forehead that will tell you if you're sleeping, you're safe. But at some point, if it does, that's a time to kind of be suspicious of Amazon. But the important thing is, and I'm almost going to finish with that, is that we're starting to see that we could understand the problems of, of behavior. And rather than just describing them and saying, okay, here's a problem, we just have a problem, let's deal with that, we're realizing that those problems exist in our brain, and we can take the brain in key moments where it's changing and actually offer fixes. So we have fixes that will actually make you wake up and suddenly not be biased by fairness, not be as a, a vulnerable to a emotional choices. Now, whether we want it or not is a different question. It's unclear right now if changing the brain this way, mechanically, is actually good for us. Years of evolution brought us to a world where we have all those biases that we live with, and we don't really like them because we fail to make the right choices for ourselves, but in a way, there's a chance that they actually... We now have a really unique understanding of the brain that allows us to poke inside, measure things, and understand how you evaluate brands, messages, communications, how you decide to vote for, and so on. And we don't yet have uh, an understanding of whether it's good to change those things or not. It's kind of like a nuclear weapon uh, in the hands of neuroscientists that is emerging right now that a lot of businesses are finding really, really interesting. So a lot of them come to us and say, I want that. And it's important, I think, to have this conversation about whether it's good or not because this is something we didn't solve. I'll finish with the, with the following sentence. The reason uh, we have all those biases is because the world that we live in is very complex and our brain is not made for this world. Uh, if you look back about 100 years ago, I think, or even 1940, I think, is the last time they did this survey, they asked people to uh, look at what are the ways they die. What things kill you? And when they looked there at all the things that kill people, they realized that most things that people died from in the 1940s, this is our grandparents' time, were things that were caused by the world to us. Wars and, uh, and famine and things that happened that killed us. If you look at the last 10 years, 
most things people die from, over 70%, are things that are happening to us because of ourselves. Car accidents, uh, diabetes, smoking, a lot of things that humans do are the leading cause of death. People. Uh, disease is still dominant, but not, not a majority anymore. So most of us die a little bit before we could because of something we did that hurt us. And this means that essentially we created a world that is almost impossible to fight. We created a world that's very convenient. It's very useful. There's escalators, and there's fast cars, and there's things that cook food very, very fast. But all of those things are not good for our brain. So neuroscientists are, recover, are uncovering more and more ways to fix that by kind of taking the brain backwards and either teaching the brain to resist those difficulties and do better, but we didn't realize yet if the solution should be just changing the way we create the world or just helping the brain become better. And we have more and more tools now that we play with that improve your brains, but we don't know yet whether this improvement will just speed up a race by which companies will become smarter in creating tools that will make you want something and you will have to create tools in your brain to not sell it, to not want those things, or whether those biases will stop at some point and will say, okay, we know what the world is and we want to go back to a world where we control everything. So I think that the, the main message of, this, of my talk is that in the next 10 years, you will see more and more people like myself coming to business schools and explaining a lot of biases and offering ways to solve them and it seems very tempting if you're a business to say, I find this use very helpful. I can get more, make more money and generate more revenues. But it also means that as customers, we have to think of this, if this is the world we want or if we want to actually decide together that we just don't play this game anymore. And instead of buying a 3.99 beer, we force the world to have four dollars, knowing that our brain is susceptible to round digits, but actually makes us buy more things we don't need. I'm going to leave you with that. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.